As you turn to Titus 2, uh, we're going to be covering, uh, for the last time, verses 11 through 14. Uh, we've, we've kind of camped out here a little bit. We had a large break uh, due to twins on my side and then missions conference and several other, other things. But we're back and we're not quite done with this passage. The reason I'm spending a lot of time in this is because I think this passage is central to the whole book. Everything hinges and emanates out from this one passage. Um, and before we get into it, I want to share a story with you that uh, a friend of mine in Dallas shared with me. He knew that one of his friends uh, was a little bit uh, uh, obsessed with fountain pens. And, and this friend had, had done a lot of good to him, so he decided, you know what, I'm going to do something nice for him. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy him a really, really nice fountain pen and, and, and give it to him. So he found a, a store in the area that actually just sold nothing but fountain pens. Uh, he went in there and with a bit of bravado said, I'd like a very nice fountain pen. I don't care what the cost. As you can imagine, the, the salespeople's eyes popped out of their head a little bit. And uh, he, he said he didn't know this existed, but they took him back and opened a door into a whole new room. In that room, they had a very nice leather chair that they sat him down in. Uh, they actually brought out some wine and some scotch, some other drinks to, to have him have the opportunity to have one of those drinks as he was sitting back there. And he said, uh, they brought something out to me. He said, the thing they brought out to me was not a pen. It was the box that the pen was carried in. And he said, they began by describing the box. They said, this is a burled wood, which is a, a, a genetic issue that happens in trees that creates a very beautiful and intricate design on them. They began talking about how the box was carved and all these things, and he started thinking, wow, this is a really big lead up. And then they opened it. And there's this gorgeous pen in there. And then they begin describing the, the pen, the, what it's made of, how there's actually gold in the nib of the pen. And, and he says, all right, how much? And they say, not, not, not yet. And they continue to describe the pen and, and, and work on it and describe where it's made and how it came here and all the different materials that were used to make this pen. And then talking about the ink and how it's of the highest and finest quality. I said, okay, okay, how much? He said, $25,000. He said, apparently price is an issue. <laughs> uh, when he had walked into that store, he had underestimated the zeal, the fanaticism that certain people had about fountain pens. And, and, and I, I want you to... Uh, have this definition in, in mind as we talk about zeal, as we talk about being zealous. Somebody who is zealous is somebody who doesn't care what the price is. Somebody who is zealous is somebody who doesn't care what the price is. With that in mind, let's look what the scripture tells us we need to be zealous for in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would apply this word into our lives, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and that we might honor you with everything we do, with everything we say, and the manner in which we do it. In Jesus' wonderful and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Now, we've started out by defining the word zealot as somebody who doesn't care what the price is. And this is particularly true in a first century context. Because this word zealot referred to the people who were willing to go against the Roman Empire. Now, those of you who study history know how foolish that is. Uh, there's a, a podcast I listen to. It's, it's got a bit of crass language in it, uh, so I can't wholeheartedly endorse it. But it's great for those of you who love history. It's called Hardcore History. And in that podcast, the host focuses on uh, the extremes of history, uh, these bizarre situations that occur. And one of them was about a certain holocaust that happened in the ancient world. And one was of uh, a Holocaust that was actually brought about by Julius Caesar and whole groups of people that no longer existed because they came in contact with the Roman Empire. There's also, if you study history, there, there are often large empires and there are a few long-lasting empires, but there's almost never long-lasting large empires. The Romans pulled it off, and they didn't pull it off by being nice and polite to people. In fact, uh, the weapon primarily used by the Roman army was the Roman gladius, which is a sword that's about that long, and it's pointed at the tip. That weapon held the record. Think about when the Roman Empire existed and how, how much time has passed. That weapon held the, the highest kill ratio for any other weapon until the handgun. Now that's a long time to maintain the streak, especially once it's been out of commission. Now, who were, who were the zealots in, in Paul's day here? Well, the zealots were the people that, that look at the Romans, that look at their army, that look at their power, that look at their empire and say, we're going to oppose them. We want our homeland back. Do you think they knew what the cost was? They, they wouldn't just crucify you, they'd crucify your whole family. The, the zealots were people who, who were sold out. They didn't care what the cost because they had totally dedicated themselves to the cause. Now, it's interesting in this passage, when you use a word like zeal, it brings up these heroic images, doesn't it? 
But it's very interesting. What we're called to do isn't something that's presented as, as something overly heroic. It's just good works. We think that's kind of plain. That's kind of vanilla. The thing we're to be zealous about is, is good works? How is that important? And in particular, if you're a Christian and you're theologically astute, you know that good works don't save us. So good works don't save us. In fact, the God who gave us life and breath and everything doesn't benefit by our works. Why? Because our works don't add anything to him. If God gave us life and breath and everything, what do we owe him? Life and breath and everything. If we give back to God our life and breath and everything, does God get anything back from it? No. In fact, C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of a child coming up to their parents. And the child asks to borrow a little bit of money to buy the parent a Christmas gift. Now, the, the parent is very pleased to give them the money, and they go out and buy the gift, and the parent's very pleased to get the gift. But Lewis says only a fool would think that after that exchange, the parent was richer. That they, they haven't gained anything. Why? Because everything they have received back is something they, they gave out initially. In the same way, when we come to the God who made the universe, when we come to the God who has saved us, we have to recognize the futility of our good works in earning anything from him. Nevertheless, it appears that part of our purpose is that we are to do good works. In fact, good works are a theme in the book of Titus. It's used uh, to describe people who are actually condemned. Look at uh, chapter 1. Uh, let's, let's back up a little uh, to verse 15. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In our passage, good works are, are presented as part of Christ's purpose in saving us. It says Christ gave himself for us. To do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. What are these people characterized by? Who are zealous for good works. Now, one of the things we have to look at in both of these passages. By the way, the, the third passage is in 3.8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This good works is, is something that characterized the life of those who are redeemed, and on the, on the same hand, it's something for which those who are condemned are found to be unworthy of. One of the things that's incredibly important in the Christian life is the order in which you go through things. What is your starting point and what is your ending point? 
For the legalist, works is the starting point. They say, I've got, to, I've got to perform a certain way. I've got to act a certain way. I've got to do a certain thing. I have to meet these certain requirements. And then I'll be somebody. And, and, and once I'm somebody, God will have to respect and honor me, and I will earn a position because of what I've done in his presence. Once I do enough righteous works, once I give away enough money, once I do enough good works, I'll be somebody. And then God will have to accept me because of who I am. Christianity works the opposite way. Christianity says, because of who God is, because of his grace, his mercy, his goodness towards us, he makes you somebody. He calls you while you're yet a sinner. He draws you into his presence. He makes you a part of his family. He calls you to be a citizen of heaven. He changes you from being a child of darkness into a child of light. He gives us a new identity. And then from that new identity, we begin displaying new activity. We begin to be obsessed with good works. Not so that we can become somebody, but because of what he has done for us. The order is radically important. What appears first? The grace of God. What does it do? It brings salvation. And from that salvation, it begins to train us to set aside the old life, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's the same grace that saves us, trains us. And in that, we're waiting on what he's promised. What has he promised us? He's promised us that his son will return and restore all things, establishing a kingdom that manifests his glory above all else. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I don't know if you hear this as you look at Titus, but for those of us who've read the Old Testament, there are echoes of this throughout the Bible. It has always been in the purposes of God for him to have a people devoted to himself who are working for his purposes. We see this with the promises made to Abraham. We see this with the people of Israel. We see it in Ezekiel talking about the new covenant. We see it in the New Testament in the purpose for which Christ died. One of the things that we, we have to realize is the high cost with which we've been bought. In, in the Old Testament, the entire temple was centered around the idea of making sure there was a proper covering for sin. I don't know if you think about this, but, but the, the temple was up on a mount. It was up, up high. And one of the things that would happen, I, I, I'm sure all of you are scientifically astute enough to know that uh, liquids run downhill. Yeah? Liquids run downhill. 
Now, what happens at the temple? The sacrifices are made. Now, there are frequent and repeated sacrifices. There are sacrifices for the nation. There are sacrifices for the priest. There are sacrifices for individual sins. There are sacrifices for corporate sins. There's Thanksgiving sacrifices where people offer things to the Lord. Now, one of the things you, you, you have to realize is that in the Old Testament it says uh, there's no covering for sin without blood. And with each of these sacrifices, they are slitting the throats of the animals. Their blood is being poured out. So from this mount above the city, you have blood pouring forth. As a reminder to the people, this is what your sins deserve. This is the only way that sin can be covered, by blood sacrifice. When we think about Christ redeeming us from lawlessness, when we think about the price he paid, I hope you remember the blood that poured down from the cross. The Old Testament, everything pointed to the temple as the place where God made himself known to his people. In the New Testament, it all points to the cross. And at that place where Christ died, we see his blood poured forth. It, it's something that should make us say, why? Something that make it, should make us say, why me? At the cross, God's goodness to us is shown. And the cost at which he was willing to purchase us is made known. I've got two uh, little boys at home. Uh, they're uh, very energetic. Uh, they're very, uh, they're just wonderful, you know? But one of the things I think of when I held them is, Lord, keep me from idolatry. You know, I just love them so much. I think about what I would do to protect them. Sometimes when I read about what God was willing to do to his only son, I think about what would I, willing, what would I exchange for them? And, you know, I haven't come up with a number yet of how many people it would take for me to sacrifice them instead of the people. I don't think I've reached a high enough number yet. If there's a train track and, and I, I choose the switch and all of y'all are lying on one side and those two are lying on the other, I am sorry, folks. <laughs> I deeply regret what I would do to you. I would know it's the wrong decision, by the way. But that would likely be the decision I made. And yet we see that in Christ, God makes his love known to us, not by sparing his son, but sacrificing his son on our behalf. To redeem means to buy, to purchase. We are a bought people. Notice again how divine theology shapes our personal identity. God is the one who has his grace appear. Where? At the cross in Jesus Christ. What does that do? That creates us as a people. That buys us out of the domain of sin and darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. We, are, we become a new people. 
And after becoming a new people, we're given a new activity. We're removed from lawlessness. We are purified to become a people who are zealous for good works. It's kind of interesting to think about being fanatical for good works. I I think of uh, college football, uh, probably because that's where some of my personal idolatry lies. And in the South, it's a place where if you're wanting to find fanaticism, it's quite easy place to go. Think about what people are willing to do for their teams, how much they're willing to spend, what they're willing to wear <laughs> in order to display how, how important their teams are to them. They're, they're fanatical about it. Can you imagine somebody who, who would uh, act as ridiculous as we do for college football about good works? And it's interesting, in, in the context... They're not these extreme things that are going on around it. It's not go out into the mission field and be persecuted. It's it's not go and die in a far-off land. It's teach what accords with sound doctrine. 2 verse 1. Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound of faith, in love and steadfastness to the older men. Verse 2. Verse 3, older women likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Teach what's good to the young women. Teach them to love their husbands and children. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Kind, submissive to your own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Young men, be self-controlled. Timothy, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech. They cannot be condemned. Their opponents may be put to shame. Bond servants, be submissive to your own masters and everything. That one's probably the most extreme, isn't it? But in those things, they're not these once-in-a-lifetime big bravado displays. They're manifesting godliness in everyday living, day after day, week after week. There was uh, someone who once challenged me. I'm sure I've shared this in this context before. But they said, if Christianity became illegal, and I began to puff up my chest, and you know, because I was anticipating them saying, if Christianity became illegal, would you be willing to pay the price? And I kind of was puffing up my chest and saying, yes, I'd be willing to. They said, would there be enough evidence to contend- condemn you? I was kind of deflated. <laughs> thought, would there? How much would the prosecution have as evidence of your Christianity? What witnesses would they bring up to testify against you? We're to be zealous for good works. This zeal that we have, um, it's not something that we receive in and of ourselves. It's something that's equipped. It's something that's empowered by God. A, a, a thing I mentioned earlier is that this doesn't benefit God. He doesn't become more powerful when I give him my might. He doesn't come any wiser when I give him my insight. It doesn't grow any stronger when I begin to work for him. But just because 
we aren't saved by good works. And just because God isn't become any more powerful or any greater because of our good works does not mean that good works are unimportant. Good works are, are vastly important, first of all, for us. If, if God has redeemed us, if God has called us to be a particular people, then good works are important for us to become who God has intended us to be. It's a special task that he has prepared beforehand in us. By the way, it mentioned before, there are certain people that are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You're either becoming the type of person who is unfit for good works, or you're becoming a person who is fit for good works. You're either, you're, uh, C.S. Lewis points out that uh, it's very hard to tell in Christianity who exactly is a Christian, who isn't, because we can't see the heart. And he says one of the things that's constantly happening is the innermost part of you, the part that chooses, is becoming either more and more and more a hellish creature by disobeying and rebelling against God, or it's becoming a more and more heavenly creature by submission and obedience to God. He says it's that inward part that, that chooses that makes a big difference. And he says a lot of times it's hard to tell the difference be between the two because we only see that outward decisions. I worked with uh, some inner city guys uh, earlier in my career in some uh, nonprofit ministries I went to. Uh, many of these guys grew up in homes where drug use was rampant. Uh, many of them have all of their peers using drugs and alcohol. Uh, how old am I? I think 34. Yeah, 34. I'll be 35 later this year if my math adds up. In, in my 34 years of living, I've only been offered illicit drugs one time. And I said no. But which is more impressive, me going those 34 years saying no to drugs and alcohol, or one of those inner-city kids who's had drugs repeatedly pushed on him over and over again, maybe as an addict for 10, 20 years, but then says no, which is more impressive. It's easy for us to look at the externals and, 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 and make judgments, but here we're focused on becoming the type of people who are prepared for the kingdom that is coming, who are preparing for the glory that's coming. And even the little things, the little things like being dignified or self-controlled, the little things like holding the door open for somebody. In these little things, we're becoming people who are searching out and trying to find ways in which we can do good so that we can become who we're intended to be. Another th reason why it's important is because it benefits the world. Our, our good works don't save us and, and they don't uh, earn us any positional favors in God, but it displays to the world God's goodness when believers act in accordance with his character. What does God do to us? He shows us unmerited favor in giving us good. 
And the world sees the hypocrisy when we claim that we serve a gracious and good and merciful God and the Christians they encounter are stingy and self-centered and rude. They think, I don't know if they believe what they're talking about. Yet when we do good, we reflect God's character on the earth to people who know him and to people who don't. By the way, um, I don't know if you've ever gotten a new car. So we, we just got a black Honda Odyssey because we needed something that would fit two car seats simultaneously that was easy to get in and out of. Uh, and whenever you get a new car, right after you get it, we got the black Honda Odyssey. Now what car do I see everywhere? <laughs> The black Honda Odysseys. Now there, there hasn't suddenly been a great increase in the number of those vehicles on the road. What's changed? My ability to notice it. Now I'm, now I'm looking for it. Now I'm attuned to it. One of the things as we read this passage, I want us to do and I want us to be is people who are attuned to good works. Are we looking for it? you have your radar up? Are you looking, how, how can I help somebody? How, how can I do something good? And there, there are different ways different people find that do this. There are people I know and uh, they get together monthly as a spouse, as a husband and wife, and they say, all right, who needs help? And how can we help them out? The different ways in which this can be manifest are almost infinite. But what's important for us is that we begin living out the identity that we have received from the blood that was bought. Sorry, from the blood that bought us. Christ has died to make us a peculiar people, a people who have an odd obsession of doing good wherever they go. Last week we mentioned the man and his pen. One of the reasons why I, I bring this up is good's going to cost you. There's, there's a price to pay. It might be your time, it might be your energy, it might be your money, it might be all three. It might be friendships. Depends what type of good you do. If you start opposing abortion, you might lose some friends. If you start being good in ways that our society is opposed to good, you're going to run into some troubles. Since we have the opportunity to do good, doesn't put us in God's graces. We are not saved by good works. Rather, we have been saved so that we are able to do good works. We're saved so that we can be empowered to become the people who God has called us to. Let us close. Let us pray before we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your own mercy, which you poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ so that being justified by your grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
so that we who believe may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Lord, may your Holy Spirit inspire us. May your Holy Spirit empower us to be creative, to be zealous, to give a high cost to doing good works that you might be honored on the earth and your truth might be displayed in our actions. In the beautiful and precious name of the one who bought us with his blood, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.